KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Ben Schwartz on the Hollywood strikes and Fintan O'Toole on Ireland since the 50s. But first, big news this week about the class struggle in America. Tuesday, the Teamsters announced a historic agreement for UPS workers rewarding more than 340,000 UPS Teamsters nationwide. We had been heading for the biggest strike in decades, scheduled to start next week. Now we have what looks like the biggest labor victory in decades. For that story, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, the Teamsters are America's biggest union, and their UPS contract is the single largest private sector collective bargaining agreement in North America. So this is big. It is big. And most of the mainstream press was focusing on how much a strike would impact the whole economy since the UPS delivers you know, uh, more uh, than any other entity in terms of package delivery, which business and individuals are very dependent on. And there's no question that for the Teamsters new regime, and they have the first new regime in a quarter century, and they had to oust the endorsed candidate of the Ancien Regime uh, to get there, this was hugely important. Uh, they had to validate uh, to their own members that they could, you know, essentially honor the promise on which they ran, which is, among other things, that we can deliver the goods better than uh, the old guys. And, you know, the last contract that uh, the former uh, leadership of the Teamsters uh, got with UPS. May we mention was, the name Hoffa in this yes, context? This was, this was Jim Hoffa Jr., uh, who was the president at the time was actually rejected by the membership, but the Hoffa uh, leadership invoked an obscure clause which said, well, unless it's rejected by 60%, it's still accepted, which is a uh, almost uh, Trumpian notion of how you uh, <laughs> assemble majority rule uh, or minority rule in this case. So the Teamsters this time really prepped uh, for this, they made all kinds of not just strike noises, but picket line orientation, what were called practice pickets, which is a term I love, in many <laughs> cities, uh, led by the, uh, the the leadership of the Teamsters, President Sean O'Brien in particular. They ended up getting um, a pretty good contract, which always had two goals. One was, yes, to deliver a contract that covers more of our members than any other contract does, indeed covers more union members than any single union contract in the United States does, and sets us up for what would be the most ambitious organizing campaign, uh, arguably since the heyday of the CIO, which is uh, Amazon. So let us go one step at a time here. First of all, money, uh, I see that uh, under the new contract, full-time full-timers will have an average top wage of $49 per hour, and existing part-time workers will receive a 48% total wage increase over the next five years. So 
join a union, get a 48% wage increase. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, and the part-time uh, uh, deal is particularly significant because nearly half of UPS employees who are union members are part-timers. Uh, and this has been kind of the larger design of American capital in recent decades is to uh, what the technical term is casualize labor, make it a part-time gig, uh, and hopefully a gig. I mean, it's only in this case that these workers actually have a union contract, and they got the most significant raise uh, relative to the full-timers, and uh, they needed it and deserved it, and it completely validates their ability to belong to a union. The other big issue was falls out of the rubric working conditions the working conditions for teamster drivers can be summed up in one word this summer hot it's very hot in the brown trucks it's very hot in the brown trucks one teamster has said the brown trucks are are really kind of mobile microwaves <laughs> uh, uh, you know the, the same box structure that a microwave has uh i'm asking our listeners to envision that so uh <laughs> Yes, they got the company to agree to air condition new trucks, to put fans at least in existing trucks. And all of this, I think, really matters not just for the the drivers and for the, you know, the selling points that the union will have, but also as the union goes forward. And I can get to that a little later. Also, I want to talk about a little more about how they did it. This is a Teamster reform slate. We've talked about how they got elected, but this was always the focus first of the Sean O'Brien election campaign. And since then, the preparations have been underway for, what, a year for uh, a confrontation and a possible strike against UPS. Yes, this wasn't just another day at the office for the new Teamster leadership. They understood both in terms of delivering the goods and their future organizing ambitions, that this was the sine qua non. This is the thing they needed most of all, both to uh, you know win, as it were, a de facto ratification vote from their members, and to use the uh, uh, song lyric, and to roll the union on to a future organizing campaign. Another thing I, I read in the union announcement that rank and file members served on the negotiating committee for the first time. This is the difference between the Hoffa regime and the new kinds of labor leadership in the United States. Uh, that's true, although there have been some unions that have been doing this for a very long time. Hotel and Restaurant uh, Unite here in, in, in particular, but it's still uh, an exception and not a rule in uh in labor bargaining and it's uh it would be well if it were a rule now now that said uh the rank and filers uh who are on a committee like this in general don't come from diehard opponents of the union <laughs> leadership that's okay. generally understood uh but with, with that caveat uh it it does uh you know it does make some difference absolutely from the beginning uh, Sean O'Brien and the new regime said their ultimate target was Amazon and their goal, as you have suggested, in the UPS contract was to get a contract that they could show to Amazon drivers and warehouse workers and say, this is what you can get if you become a member of the Teamsters Union. Do they have that now? 
I think they do. And I want to highlight some not very well publicized features of the agreement that I think are particularly germane to efforts to unionize uh, Amazon workers. Uh, it's not actually so much the dollars and cents. Amazon has the dollars and cents, and it's Amazon's general strategy is, particularly in non-metropolitan areas, okay, we're going to pay you more than the local competition. The work is sheer hell, and we're going to burn you out in eight months, uh, but you'll come in for the money. The Teamsters got a lot of stuff in the contract that deals with the working conditions uh, and surveillance that burn out Amazon workers. You referenced the air conditioning, and Lord knows there have been a slew of stories of Amazon warehouse workers uh, you know, just passing out due to the heat in warehouses. They all, the Teamsters also got uh, uh, restrictions on uh, ride-alongs from management and the uh, elimination of the camera pointed at the driver through which UPS would survey the driver's every move. Now, there is no more heavily electronically surveilled workplace in the United States than an Amazon warehouse. And the Teamsters can now go to Amazon workers. I'm going to actually write about this uh, at, at the prospect. The Teamsters can now go to Amazon workers and say, look, uh, we got rid of the electronic surveillance, the measuring of your every step, uh, you know, in managerial terms, the tailorism of, of the UPS regime, which is far worse than the Amazon regime. So if you want to know why you want to join us, we can make your life significantly less hellacious. So I want to switch to the um, political front. The Missouri Supreme Court unanimously ruled that an abortion ballot initiative can appear on the 2024 ballot. This effort has been underway for years. It's been held up when the anti-abortion attorney general said the state auditor had underestimated the cost to the taxpayers. Uh, the Supreme Court of Missouri said that was ridiculous. So now young voters and women are much more likely to turn out and vote in Missouri in November 24, and they will be joining voters in a lot of other states that will have abortion rights initiatives on their ballot. Voters in nine states could see abortion rights on their ballot. In addition to Missouri, initiatives so far have been filed in Florida, Maryland, and South Dakota, and Ohio. Ohio is the big one. Let's talk about Ohio for a minute. Supporters of an abortion rights amendment to the state constitution submitted nearly twice the number of signatures they needed to get that amendment on the ballot. Uh, a new poll showed that voters in Ohio massively support abortion rights as a part of their state constitution. This is the USA Today poll. 58% in favor of adding abortion rights to the state constitution, 32% opposed. A third of Republicans are in favor. And this is the most amazing figure from Ohio. 85% of independent women likely voters are in favor of the Ohio abortion rights initiative, which will now appear. There's one caveat here. Abortion opponents put a second initiative on a in a special election 
uh, that will f- uh, follow what we've talked about here is the Hoffa and Trump approach Indeed. to victory. Yes. A 60% majority required to approve an amendment to the state constitution. That's being voted on right now. The deadline in that election is August 8th, but a recent poll showed that the Republican strategy here backfired. Ohioans who support a 60% supermajority to amend the state constitution uh, oppose 57% support 26%. So what does this tell us about abortion rights in the 2024 election? Well, that it may well function as it functioned in the 2022 election. In other words, it would, uh, uh, to use the phrase, save the Democrats' bacon and preserve abortion rights. If I'm Sherrod Brown, who is the incumbent, basically liberal Democratic senator, up for re-election in Ohio and has been the only Democrat to win statewide elections in Ohio for well over a decade, uh, I am going to ride this as best I can. And so is Joe Biden in uh uh, Ohio and Missouri, those are states it's going to be hard for any Democrat to win, regardless of the abortion issue. Nonetheless, I, I think at least creates a better chance for Sherrod Brown and perhaps the Democrat who ends up opposing Josh Hawley uh, in the Senate election in Missouri. It'll still be tougher for President Biden, but you know, it, it's something that definitely will help. You know, let's remember. At what happened in uh, in Michigan in 2022? Right, not just the liberal states, but Kansas, Kentucky, and Montana also passed abortion rights initiatives. So this does turn out new voters in in red states. God knows, uh, Kansas and Montana are pretty red. And uh, I would think that if it's on the ballot in Florida, uh, this could be a hell of a, a embarrassment and problem for a guy named DeSantis as well. Oh, and there's one more state where we can credit uh, abortion rights uh, with uh, victory, and that's the Wisconsin State Supreme Court election, where the abortion rights candidate was elected overwhelmingly. Yes, We've got a lot of states on this list now. Yes, for a state where elections are usually decided by one or two points, the liberal Democrat running uh, to ensure the state's uh, guarantees of abortion rights won by double digits. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, uh, so-called pro-life movement may may turn out to have a deadly effect on so-called pro-life candidates. <laughs> okay. And another election issue, listeners may recall that the Supreme Court uh, in the term that recently ended had a surprise victory for voting rights. The The ruling that racial gerrymandering was unconstitutional, where they prohibited congressional maps that dilute minority voting strength. The case was in Alabama, where the court ruled that black voters were entitled to majorities in two congressional districts, not the one that the Republican maps had allowed. But it's not just Alabama that has to create more black districts for the House of Representatives now. The New York Times on Wednesday said, Five mostly white districts in the South will now have to be redrawn because of the Supreme Court ruling to become mostly black Democratic districts. That's that's probably five more Democratic seats from the South in the House next term. How significant can five seats be? Well, given that the Democrats are at 213 members right now and at 218 is the majority, 
213 plus 5 <laughs> equals 218. And there are other states, for instance, there are other states which you have to believe are going to elect more Democrats than they currently have as well. Uh, Wisconsin. Let me cite Wisconsin here. What The second big effect of that state Supreme Court election victory is uh, redrawing the Wisconsin electoral maps that create at least one more Democratic district. So that brings us up to a majority in the House right there. It does, but uh, I would expect the Democrats are going to pick up uh, a, a few seats in uh, New York, California, and possibly Illinois as well in uh, in 2024. I'm more worried about the Democrats losing control of the Senate than I am uh, about the Democrats failing to retake the House. I think they will retake the House. The Senate creates anxiety. Finally, the other big question in politics, where is Melania? She's not campaigning at Trump's side. She hasn't appeared with him when he has had to go to court to be arraigned on state and federal criminal charges. Unlike other first ladies, she hasn't written a best-selling memoir. She hasn't been earning lots of money giving paid speeches. She hasn't launched a foundation devoted to saving the children or curing disease. According to a big story in the New York Times on Wednesday, based on a dozen interviews with associates, campaign aides, and friends, most of whom spoke on the conditions of anonymity because they were not authorized to discuss her life, she prefers to stay away from the public eye. Some have called her icy and disengaged. The conclusion of the investigative reporters for our national newspaper of record, Melania wants to lead a private life. My question for you, why would that be? <laughs> well, I mean, I think the follow-up question is, how much does she want to lead a private life without Donald? <laughs> Not like there have been photos of Donald lately that show Melania by his side. Not only, you know, uh, on, on the stump, but on the golf course, anywhere else where he's not really campaigning. She probably has figured that the only way to preserve any sanity is just to stay away as much as possible. I can't say that anyone should blame her for that. Harold Meyerson, he doesn't blame Melania. Read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The Hollywood studios just had a historic weekend at the box office. The Barbie movie made $155 million in three days. That was a record. And Oppenheimer made $80 million. Total, $235 million for two movies. And the people who made these movies, actors and the writers, they've been on strike. The writer since May, the actor since July 14th. For comment, we turn to Ben Schwartz. He's an Emmy-nominated writer, a member of the Writers Guild of America West. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, The New York Times, and The Nation. We reached him today at home in L.A. Ben Schwartz, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. 
Well, it's hard to forget that studio head quoted in Deadline about the studio's endgame for the writers. He said, quote, the endgame is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. And another insider called it, quote, a cruel but necessary evil, close quote. What do you make of that? Uh, I thought it was tough talk, but there's no guarantee that they can outlast the unions. I mean, it is cruel. It is a mean-spirited threat. But I think at the end of the day, it's empty, too, because, one, they don't seem to understand how desperate people already are. They don't understand how difficult it is to make your living as an artist. Uh, many artists are used to working for a long period or going for long periods of time without work. And the whole reason this has come to strike is because many people are already that desperate and seeking work outside the industry. It's, it's a great example of how out of touch a person like that is with the reality of working in this business. Yeah, there are 160,000 actors. There's only 11,500 writers. Paying the writers more is hardly going to destroy the studios. It almost seems like money isn't the issue for them. The studios don't like the idea of unions, of a union claiming the power to negotiate the writer's pay. The studio heads here have the same attitude the rest of the C CEO class has in the United States. They, they'd like to get rid of unions, and a lot of them have succeeded outside of Hollywood. Yeah, they have. And one of the executives, and it was a quote in the last couple of weeks, saying that, you know, that the issue isn't just the entertainment industry, it's unions all over the world. A successful strike and a successful union encourages other people to organize and encourages more union activism. And the numbers for this particular strike won't break the studios. But they know what's next. Uh, you, know, you know, many of these companies like Apple and Amazon, you know, they have union issues beyond the entertainment industry. Uh, NBC, for example, really doesn't. It's a smaller business in some ways. And when you deal with these international, multinational, global corporations, they're looking at union organizing all over the world. The, the multinational nature of some of these companies, it also shows a weakness in the Alliance of Motion Picture Television Producers, the AMPTP uh, management. And I think that the AMPTP could fracture before the unions will. Unlike Strikes Past, where it was three networks and five movie studios, who are in, a, in a, and essentially a small business with a huge impact in the world, but kind of a small business, they were all on the same page. You had people like Lou Wasserman, who were very tough and understood their end of the business because it was easier to understand than today. And there's a very different business where you have people like Netflix who are basically streamers. You have Disney, which makes movies and television shows and has theme parks around the world. They have many, many concerns. Some have a lot of several concerns. Others have one. And I think that's going to uh, fracture their organization before the unions will fracture. And the other thing that might fracture them is that some are making a ton of money, Netflix, and some have stock is way down, Disney and also Paramount, I understand. Yeah, I thought in any other moment of 
Bob Iger's career. In his CNBC interview, he talked about how ABC may no longer be a core, uh, be core to Disney, and that Disney Plus is not making money. Everybody knows, but when Bob Iger, a very smart man who's been in television since the 1970s, if he can't figure out how to make television work, then there's some huge issues here that aren't really about the strike. Yeah, Bob Iger has been uh, in the news a lot lately. People have never quite gotten over his quote uh, speaking at what's called the Billionaire Summer Camp at Sun Valley a couple of weeks ago. What did he call the union's position? Uh, unrealistic. And, and why do you think he said that? He could have said, you know, I won't discuss an ongoing labor dispute, but I hope we reach a fair settlement and get back to making the shows America loves or something like that. Duncan Crabtree Ireland, the Screen Actors Guild negotiator, said that it portrayed a colonial point of view of the corporations to the unions. And I see that. Uh, there is a condescension there that these folks in these rather lofty positions in the rarefied air uh, he, of the CEO suites miss out on. They don't understand the functionality of, you know, the, the core functionality of actors, writers, and directors. We're not commodities. We are the people who create these things. And as Fran, as Fran Drescher pointed out, the Screen Actors Guild president, they foisted this business model on the entire industry and they didn't think it through. It's not the fault of actors, writers, and directors that Disney Plus can't make money. It's not our job to make that thing make money. It's our job to make sure it has many entertainment options for people. It's, it's not the guilds and the unions that should have to pay the price for their failure. Not when he's also collecting a $20 million plus two-year contract. 27 right? million. I believe it's 27 million a year. 27 million. He just laid off 7,000 people in the first six months of this year. There's no way that should be viewed as a success. You know, I'm from a small town, a factory town, Kenosha, Wisconsin. And if you're laying off people, it means your business isn't doing well. And when he talks about the unrealistic expectations, he's the one with the unrealistic expectations if he thinks he deserves those paychecks while the rest of us are suffering like this. Well, of course, there's a few superstar actors who make huge amounts of money. Some of them even make more than Bob Iger, but most are unemployed a lot of the time. And that's why the union asked its highest earning members to donate to the union strike fund. What kind of response have they gotten? Well, Dwayne Johnson apparently is in the news today because he apparently made a seven figure donation. They haven't disclosed the actual amount to the Screen Actors Guild strike fund. And I don't know about other actors in his position. I know Tom Cruise a week or so ago was talking about being able to promote movies, which actors are not allowed to do during the strike, to promote his movies during the strike. And I really think that uh, Dwayne Johnson really sort of stepped up in the right direction here. Although, you know, the Screen Actors Guild responded to Tom Cruise by saying, well, how about coming out on the line? Yeah. You know, I mean, wherever he goes, there's going to be cameras. So if he wants to promote his movie, that would be a great way uh, to be out there. But you need that kind of 
support because I believe the figure is 87% of the Screen Actors Guild cannot afford health care. Yeah. And so, I, I am a person who believes that health care is a realistic expectation. Yeah. You know, I wasn't quite sure. I must confess, I wasn't quite sure who Dwayne Johnson was. I learned he's the former wrestling champion known as The Rock, who became the star of the Fast and Furious franchise. His films have grossed more than $10 billion worldwide, making him one of the world's highest grossing and best paid actors in 2019 time magazine named dwayne johnson one of the world's most influential people well yeah i mean he's every <laughs> apparently not at your house because <laughs> you, you didn't know it was but to a lot of people he is and uh he he has been this exceptional star in anything that he's done and uh i think he's a person who really appreciates that he gets that uh, because he came up in a very tough business. Wrestling is a very <laughs> tough way to make a living in the entertainment industry. So that is much appreciated. And uh, I wish writers made that much money where they could donate seven figures to the guild. But um, I think he did a great thing. I want to talk about where we stand in the negotiations. I know the studios have refused to meet with the Writers Guild since May. The Actors Guild released a chart showing their proposals and the studio's responses. Let me just read the top two items. First, minimum pay. SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, asked for an 11% general wage increase in year one, 4% more in year two, 4% more in year three, total 19%. Not that much compared to what other unions are winning. The Teamsters just got 48% over five years for UPS drivers. The studio's re response to 11% year one, et cetera, was 5% in year one, 4% in year two, 3% in year three. Pretty bad, but not as bad as their response to number two, new media revenue sharing. The union proposal was, I'm quoting, Casts are to share in the revenue generated when their performances are exhibited on streaming platforms. The studio response, one word, rejected. What does that say about where we stand now in the negotiations? Well, you know, I, obviously the actors and writers and directors need to participate in profits. Although the mismanagement of these streaming platforms is public knowledge they won't release the numbers of viewers to a specific show but we can all see disney's losses on disney plus they are losing money but the actors still need to be paid per viewer how the studios and streamers manage their money and their product it's like it's it's not really our problem when you have a lot of viewers for a show uh the people who made the show should be should be getting paid so how can the present impasse be broken? Barry Diller, former Hollywood studio chief, suggested that studio executives and top earning actors should take a 25% pay cut to bring a quick end to the strikes and help prevent what he called, quote, the collapse of the entire industry, close quote. I wonder what you think about that. It's pretty catastrophic thinking, and I hope uh, I don't really agree that the whole industry will collapse. I think these streaming platforms are going to need to be reshaped and reformed 
But as far as that, when he's talking about the pay cut that actors should get, the actors, you know, they make their big money really at gross points and things. And, and what happens when the movie's really successful? Now, I don't know if he's, you know, got a list of actors he thinks are overpaid. He's probably being very nice not to name them. But um, actors, directors, and writers, when you get paid with residuals, you're getting paid on the success of these things. That's how many of us make a living. We shouldn't have to lose that because they created a money-losing model. I think most people don't realize that entertainment is in many ways, just another industry. It's full of regular people doing regular work. The vast majority of the people who write scripts or act in movies or on TV are not rich and famous. And if left to their own devices, the companies, like all the other industrial companies in the United States, will always try to push labor costs towards zero and executive pay towards infinity. And Hollywood is one of the few remaining private industries where there are active unions. So so when a studio exec says he wants to make the writers homeless, he's explaining why we need unions. It very much is. And he's, that's never going to happen. I mean, yes, people have tough times, but the studios pressuring the, the unions and holding out, it's not going to have that effect. He's only increased the resolve of union members. First of all, he made the, the quote anonymously, so I think nobody's going to be afraid of a cowardly guy like that or woman. Who knows? Don't know who said it. But whoever said that's making a threat they don't want to make publicly because they know they have more to lose than we do when they say things like that. And it's just a stupid, cruel thing to say. And it's not going to have the desired effect. And again, when I read it, I just thought, sounds like somebody is losing. Ben Schwartz is a member of the Writers Guild of America West. Can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about one of the best books of 2022 and one of my favorites, We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland by Fintan O'Toole. It's out this week in paperback. In the words of John Banville, the book is a study of the more or less sad state of Ireland from the year of the author's birth, 1958 to the present, years of willful blindness, political chicanery, moral duplicity, heedless cruelty, untrammeled corruption, and sheer lunacy, close quote John Banville. But it was also a period with triumphant victories, an Ireland where abortion was legalized by national referendum, an Ireland that became the first country in the world to legalize gay marriage, an Ireland where years of terrible sectarian violence ended with peace, an Ireland that became one of the most globalized economies in the world. Already I'm getting dizzy. Fintan O'Toole is a columnist for the Irish Times and the Leonard L. Milberg Professor of Irish Letters at Princeton. The new book was named one of the 10 best books of 2022, 
by the New York Times and the Atlantic, and one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post, the New Yorker, lots of other places. We reached him today in Princeton. Fintan O'Toole, welcome back. Oh, thank you very much, John. It's lovely to talk to you again. You tell this story by connecting your own life to, what should we call them, larger historical forces. Sounds very conventional, but the way you do it, it's not. The way you do it, it's actually wonderful. My favorite example is your chapter on Katanga in 1961. And of course, readers wonder, well, what does this have to do with Ireland? What does this have to do with you? The Katanga Rebellion, some of our listeners will remember that the CIA helped assassinate Patrice Lumumba, the first elected head of the newly independent Congo, a former Belgian colony. Lumumba had accepted aid from the Soviet Union to fight. To fight who? To fight the Katangese rebels. So Katanga was a mineral-rich province of the Congo. Um, the Belgians in particular, who were the colonial masters there, had a very strong interest in retaining control over it. The British and the Americans had a, an interest in supporting the Belgians because of the Cold War. They saw everything in those kind of uh, antagonistic terms. Um, if Lumumba wasn't one of us, he was one of them. Of course, this was secret. Uh, the, the Belgian involvement was pretty obvious, but the, the US and, and British involvement, French involvement was in the background. But essentially, they supported a secession by Katanga from the Congo. And uh, this developed into a civil war. What did this have to do with Ireland? <laughs> That's a great question. So Ireland is really just beginning to emerge, you know, as a country with any kind of international reputation, right? So it's, remember, it was neutral in the Second World War. The old phrase that was always used by the patriots, you know, for, for wanting Irish independence, was we must take our place among the nations of the earth, you know. So finally, you've got the, the civil war in the Congo and the UN has to get involved. But they don't want either side. They don't want somebody who's aligned with, with Russia or somebody who's aligned with, 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 with the West. And so Ireland seems sort of acceptable because it's a Western anti-communist country, but also, of course, it's a, a post-colonial country and it has a lot of sympathy with Congolese independence. And then the Irish army was, was sent in um, supposedly to keep the peace. And this is where my own uh, family's involvement in it comes into being, because my, my uncle was one of the Irish soldiers sent off, my mother's brother, Willie. And you have to imagine this. I mean, th they had... Second World War rifles, and in some cases, First World War rifles. They had heavy woolen uniforms, you know, suitable for tramping around the bogs of Ireland, but certainly not for the Congo. They had never been abroad, most of them. I mean, they'd never been, you know, maybe some of them had been to England, possibly, but they had no notion where they were going. And they were kind of thrown into the middle of this, this really terrible conflict where there were big forces at play. And you open this chapter with... A wonderful scene. Your father had a good working class job as a bus driver. Tell us the story here. Yeah, so so my, my father was actually a bus conductor, as they were called in those days, which was the guy who collected the tickets. They were all guys back then. The story really begins with, with my father. In those days, the back of the bus was sort of open and the conductor would sort of stand near the, the back of the bus. So he, 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 they were slowly passing a newspaper seller. He saw the newspaper with uh, the image of these Irish soldiers who'd been captured in the Congo. 
and he he jumped off and he ran got a copy of the paper and then more or less abandoned the bus and ran home <laughs> to our house because they they had thought that my uncle was dead the the word had spread that these guys had been not just captured uh, but that they'd been executed. Uh, and so uh, there was a photograph on the front page of the newspaper of these captured Irish soldiers, and it included Willie. <laughs> and uh, that, that was the news. You know, it turned out these guys had been in a, an incredible feat of arms, right, which was a small town called Jadaville. There were about 150 of them. And they were attacked by 3,000 Katangese uh, mercenaries. You know, led by hardened Belgian and French officers with with a, with a you know a fighter plane and all sorts of stuff, and it was an incredible feat of arms because they held them off for three days and they didn't lose a single man. You know, and and they should have been hailed as heroes, but the Irish didn't know what to do with them because the only thing we ever really knew about in terms of arms was martyrdom. You know, if they'd been killed. They would have been sort of national heroes. But as it was, they were actually treated as cowards and as shameful because they surrendered after three days when they realized <laughs> that they weren't going to get any help. They, they never got any medals. They never got any kind of praise for this sort of thing. And it was a sort of weird bit of, of, of Irish history that just didn't make any sense and, and was pretty much buried. But of course, also there was the issue of race. And that takes me to the question, who were the Balubas? When, when I was a kid, uh, if you were behaving badly, your teacher would say, you Baluba. And the, the Baluba were a people in the Congo who, who were actually um, treated appallingly by the Belgians and the, and, and the mercenaries. They were sort of tribal people and they were exploited and, and, and attacked. And the Irish soldiers actually were trying to protect them, but they mistook a lot of the Irish troops for Belgians uh, and thought that they were coming to attack them and they ambushed them. And there was a big ambush where a lot of Irish soldiers were killed. But for about 20 years, this sort of word, baluba, you know, remained as a slur in Irish speech. Um, and of course, particularly when that was attached to black people. But it, it also, of course, through that racism stood for sort of any kind of, you know, bad behavior. You know, judges with uh, juvenile delinquents up in front of them would call them balubas. Amazing story. Two months after you were born in 1958, a team of civil servants in the Department of Finance published a plan for economic development. You say it shaped your life and the lives of millions of other Irish people. This was a plan for Irish industrialization that you describe as the opposite of Stalin's five-year plans. Please explain the difference. <laughs> so Stalin's five-year plans, of course, would always set impossible targets, you know, and then, you know, the Stakhanovite effort would have to be made to reach them. And, you know, a lot of the propaganda would be about how, you know, the heroic people had, had, had surpassed these impossible targets for pig iron production and whatever. Ireland was so demoralized that when, when, they, when they set out this plan in 1958, they deliberately set the bar really low, you know, because they just realized that, uh, you know, the, the psychological boost of saying, we met the target. And the target was 2% growth. And 2% growth might say, well, that's okay, you know, but it was 2% growth on almost nothing. So by the time I was born, effectively, independent Ireland had failed. I mean, it, it was a failure as a nationalist project, simply because Irish people were leaving. 
in huge numbers. They always had left in huge numbers, but again, after the Second World War, there was a huge exodus of young people, particularly to Britain. And that's humiliating. You know, you've 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 gone through all this pain and suffering to um, you know, declare yourself independent of the old colonial master, and here's your young people going to try and make a life there. There were two countries in Europe that lost population in the 1950s. One was East Germany before they built a wall, and the other was Ireland. And they would have built a wall if they could have built a wall. <laughs> but you can't build a wall around a whole island, although maybe Donald Trump might might, might try it if he, if he had the chance. But so the, the level of demoralization was was enormous, you know, and and, and just a sense that there is no future. Uh, so what they had to do in a way was sort of burn down the village in order to save it, that in order to sort of try to keep this Catholic nationalist Ireland going, they had to change it radically by bringing in foreign capital, starting the process of urbanization and industrialization, which became a process of globalization over time, as you mentioned. And that's really what transformed Ireland in my lifetime. One of your themes is everyone knew. And the first thing here, of course, is sexual abuse of children by priests. And here you point to a, an account of several children raped by a priest that shows what you call the church's great achievement in Ireland. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's a very dark side of it, isn't it? You know, which is that, that it, it, in a way, their great achievement was that they, they got so much into people's heads. I mean, this was a, a society that was completely dominated by the church. T tell us about those parents who said they were apologetic. Yeah, so you, you, you know the the uh, this actually came up again and again. Um, you, you know, which was which was cases where parents uh, went to the bishop, you know, because their kid was being abused, and w went w with a, with an with an apology, you know, to say we're, we're really really sorry to trouble you with this, and you know, it's really terrible, and we don't want to cause any scandal, and you, you know. It's it's the sadness of it, you know. Th these were not bad people; they were, they were loving parents who wanted to care for their kids, but they were so scared spiritually. You know, I, I don't just mean scared of kind of temporal consequence, but remember, people really did believe you could go to hell, and they really did believe that the church had the power to decide this. You know, and they people just didn't want uh, to do anything that would damage the church even though the church was knowingly allowing some of the, you know, the most appalling pedophiles to, to operate with complete impunity, you know, and, and th this was the very dark side of this, as you say, that this, I, I kind of write about it or use it as a theme, almost this thing of knowing and not knowing. Right. So everybody knew this stuff. We as kids knew it. Yeah. You have a, 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 a shocking, a, a shocking report of about a teacher uh, of yours, a Latin teacher, and your friend David, who actually confronted him in class? Yeah, you know, uh, this it's very upsetting always to think about, but you know, he I mean he would masturbate openly in class. He would he would fondle boys. It was all an all-boys school. So we this was the first year of this secondary school, as we call it, be your equivalent of high school. He would fondle boys, you know, he would sit down beside boys and put his hand down their trousers. I mean, this is in class, you know, in, in front of everybody. So it 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 wasn't like he didn't even feel he had to hide. And I remember David, who was my my braver next door neighbor, you know, standing up one day and, and shouting at him, you know, and 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 of course the one of the distortions that was because kids didn't have a, a language to describe this, you know, he called him a queer, 
you know, uh, because of course, in, in 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 the kids' minds, everything was kind of lumped in together. You know, with very little understanding of being gay, for example, or you know, we, we knew very little about our own sexuality anyway. You know, so these kinds of words were used. But but he was trying to confront this guy. You know, and it was like a moment where you thought, oh my god, this is you know, everything is going to crumble. You know, and of course, it didn't. It just carried on. It's just nothing happened. You know, and it, it was just sort of ignored. You say that none of the brothers who were your teachers went after you. They picked other boys. Why do you think that was? Yeah, you know, actually, John, I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently. Um, so I always thought it was because they always picked on kids who were more vulnerable, you know, uh, kids who they maybe knew the father was an alcoholic or the kids were kind of, we were all working class kids. Nobody, you know, we were all relatively poor, but obviously some kids were poorer than others and and I always thought it was that, you know, but but recently in Ireland, there's been a new rash of, of revelations about actually some of the richest, wealthiest schools in, in, in the country, the elite schools, you know, hmm. and abuse of kids who are from very wealthy, well-functioning families going on. And, and this has actually made me having to have to think about the whole thing myself, even, you know, because I think my sense as to why we were OK, this just seems to be wrong. I wonder, was it something as simple as we lived very close to the school and they knew my father and my father had been a boxer, <laughs> you know, he, he wasn't a big man, but he was a, he was a very tough, tough guy. He was an Irish champion, junior champion boxer, you know, when, when, he, when he was young. And uh, it, it may just have been that they were a bit afraid of my dad. You know? <laughs> uh, maybe it was just as simple as that. Another thing that everyone knew was about abortion. While the U.S. recently has, you know, uh, removed abortion rights from the Constitution and banned it completely in many states, Ireland, in the meantime, made abortion legal, not, not by a court ruling, but by referendum in 2018. The story of your engagement with legalization of abortion began long before that, you say, in 1976, when you were 16 and had to decide what you thought about abortion, what called the question for you? Had you gotten a girlfriend pregnant? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, I, I'm afraid I wasn't. Um, I wasn't active uh, in any way that would have made that possible at that time. <laughs> okay. I'm a very innocent boy. But but this was simply that I think because I was um, becoming better educated than a lot of people around, it was assumed I knew things. And a very good friend of mine asked me to come to their house. And and uh, it was his sister, actually, who had become pregnant. Unusually, you know, the, the, the family said, said she 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 wants to have an abortion and we support her, but we no idea how to do this. How do you do it? And I said, I don't know, but I can find out. And of course, the only way to do it really was to go to England. You know, you, you, you couldn't do it in Ireland, but I was able to get them a phone number. And then being confronted with it, was I going to turn around to that girl and say, you don't have a right to do this? And I knew instantly what I thought, right? Which was that actually what I thought was irrelevant. <laughs> this was about her. It was about her life and her choice. That for me was a kind of moment of, of revelation. But, you know, at that time, John, abortion, you have to remember, was, was completely illegal in Ireland. In fact, it was a crime in Ireland to tell a woman the name of an abortion service in England. It's the sort of thing Texas is trying to do yeah. uh, right now. But Absolutely. you say the point of that law was not actually to stop Irish women from going to England to get abortions. What, what was the point? The point was to stop them talking about it. The point was to maintain the knowing and not knowing. And of course, this is 
something you're confronting in America right now, right, which is that the right-wing conservatives both want and don't want to stop abortion. <laughs> they actually don't want to face the consequences of, of what happens uh, if you start jailing everybody who, as you say, gives somebody a phone number for an abortion clinic, or uh, they just want to um, make women ashamed. They they want to make sure that women don't talk about it, don't acknowledge it, that it that the things that flow from that, which is that women have a right to control their own reproduction, is not part of the public discourse. And this is what happens in Ireland, right? Which is that for years and years and years, Irish women had abortions. They went to England. I never, never, really until I would say I was in my late 30s, met a woman who told me she had an abortion. And that was true of all my friends, uh, people I worked with. There was this invisible, silent group of women, you know, getting into the hundreds of thousands, of course, you know, uh, but they didn't talk about it. The weird thing, and I, uh, people in the States might get some comfort out of this, is that actually the right pushed it too far. In 1983, we had a referendum to put this clause into the Constitution. Now, the country in the world at least needed a constitutional uh, ban on abortion <laughs> yes. who was Ireland. It was already banned. You could already get life imprisonment. You know, the, what else could you do? But what was the vote? What was the vote on adding this ban on abortion to the Constitution in 1983? It was two to one, John. You know, I, I remember at the time just the sense of despair. You know, it was overwhelming, two to one. I'm sort of even slightly relieved that we that we got the the one bit, you know, that apparently people voted against it. <laughs> and then when it was repealed, when it was repealed by the referendum in 2018, what was the vote then? It was two to one. <laughs> it was almost an exact reversal, you know. And it was a very, very moving moment because the the original referendum in 83 had been terribly divisive, you know, and really awful stuff, you know. And, and everybody feared that kind of re rerunning it in 2018 that I think most of us thought, well, yes, it, we will win this time. You know, it, it will be repealed, but it's going to be nasty. And actually, to be quite honest, it wasn't nasty. And, and one of the reasons it wasn't is that um, the silence was broken. Women spoke about their lives and they spoke about their pregnancies and they spoke about what the choices that they, they wanted to make and had to make were. One of the bad things about Ireland is that it's a small society. And if, if, if it's kind of in a hysterical conservative mode, uh, it can be really, really claustrophobic. The good thing is that if that turns around the other side, mm -hmm. it's a small society where everybody knows everybody. And the person you know is your mother or your sister or your workmate or your colleague who, who's saying, well, I had an abortion. And so storytelling, actually, this happened twice. 2015 was the first time we had a referendum on same-sex marriage. And we were the first country in the world to bring in same-sex marriage by popular vote. You know, it's happened through courts or parliaments. And again, that, that was two to one, too, you know, in, in favor of same-sex marriage, which was very, very moving. But again, it was one because LGBTQ people, they had to break their own privacy and nobody should have to do this. I mean, nobody should have to go out and tell their story, but, but they did it with, 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 with grace and wit and humor and, and, and compassion. And it, it actually became a sort of love, lovely moment. And I, I remember my father, you know, whom we started with, you know, who was, who was well into his eighties, you know, and 
I'd been in America. I, I, I was in here in Princeton. And I, I, I just got home for the vote a couple of days before. And I said to my father, I wasn't sure how he would feel because he was a very liberal man, but also he'd grown up, you know, with, with certain prejudices and all that, you know, and I said, so how do you think it's going to go? And he looked at me like I was an idiot, you know. He just said, "Why would anybody vote against that?" He he, he literally couldn't get his head around the idea that anybody would, would would think it was wrong that LGBTQ people could marry. So, so the, the the change was really very very profound, and it was a human change. You know, it actually just came from engaging with 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 our fellow men and women. You say abortion was the great boundary line in a way that LGBTQ rights had not been. It was the border that gave shape to the whole territory. And so the the effort to make Ireland a modern global economy while preserving this traditional Catholic church-dominated culture failed. The people who worried about preserving that difference between the cultural tradition, let us call it nicely, and the economic modernization thought that joining economic and cultural change would mean Ireland would disappear as a separate culture and just become a version of America. Do you think that's happened? Uh, no, it hasn't. I mean, obviously, the place has changed hugely. Uh, all societies change when you move from the countryside to the city, you know, when you move from an agricultural economy to 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 a very sophisticated one. When you move from being like, we, when I was born, we were the worst educated people in Europe, and we're now the best educated. <laughs> 55% of the entire population has a third level degree. So, of course, the culture changes, but I don't think it's less rich. I think it's richer. It's, it's actually a very important question, though, John, because the right builds on cultural pessimism. It, it understands culture as something which is fixed, which was created at some point in the past, and therefore in a way can only be lost. The only thing that can really happen to it is it gets eroded, you know, unless it's protected. And of course, Ireland is one of the great examples of a culture which has been formed through transformation, you know, all the time. Because remember, it's a diaspora culture. You know, it's 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 a culture which for hundreds and hundreds of years is shaped by migration and pretty in our case, outward migration and now by inward migration. It's giving and taking and mixing and matching. And I've never been a pessimist about that just because, you know, you just look at uh, the vibrancy of, of Irish culture. And uh, I think it's a very good rebuke to those attitudes on the right, you know, about what culture is. The book is We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland by Fintan O'Toole. Fintan, thank you for writing this book, and thanks for talking with us today. It's been a huge pleasure, John. Thank you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music